Hey everyone, it's Rod. This video is the second part of the interview that I had with Brian Hoyland. So if you haven't seen the first video, which is just Brian's story, there'll be a link to that in the description. This is the follow-up conversation that we had, and I think you'll find it really fascinating. I hope you enjoy it as much as what I did. So let's go to the video. I can see it never gets old, right? <laughs> no, it definitely gets old. In fact, it actually gets better. The more I tell it, the more I get experience at trying to explain something that's almost impossible to really comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. How do you explain the infinite from to a finite standards that we have in our vocabulary? It's trying to find the right analogies and descriptions to explain these really supernatural. I was interested in a little more of as a child, you talk about this in your book quite a bit. You mentioned the tough guy mentality that you were talking about while you're telling your story. So I'm interested in how you were shaped into that with your children as you were growing up and how that's helped you with your career in the military as well. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. I can. My parents are actually quite pacifists, if you will. It's quite interesting because my dad, I don't think my dad's ever been in a fight. He's one of those people, He, if he wanted to, the guy is a really strong guy, so he could really inflict some damage on somebody. But he doesn't have that kind of heart. He's just one of those people who avoids conflict and he's always really mindful about how he talks to people. My mom, on the other hand, always encouraged me to speak my mind, to always stick up for myself and to stick up for other people as well. And, you know, they both agreed on one situation. I was about four years old. My sister was three and she was swinging on a swing at a playground. And this other kid, my parents tell the story that he was about eight years old. because He's twice as big as me, but he pushed my sister off the swing. Like I got so, oh, so you were three, sorry, you were three and he was eight. Is it? I was four. Okay. All right. Yeah. Four. So you, okay. You're tiny. But he was a big kid nonetheless. Yeah. My parents, sometimes you might exaggerate a story or your kid doesn't remember it totally, but talk to my parents again. They're like, yeah, that's how it went down. I don't remember anything of this, my, mind you, but I remember the telling of the story a lot growing up. My parents were very proud of the fact that I stuck up for my sister. Of course, both sets of parents ran over and his mom scolding him and telling him not to do that. My parents were comforting my sister and I'm just standing there looking around and my dad was just so proud of me. He patted me on the back. But I remember always, every time they told this story, how proud they were that I was this protector of my sister. And as I grew up, my parents, like we discussed, my parents were both very young. So they didn't have a lot of money in the neighborhood that I grew up in. It wasn't uncommon for the older kids to take advantage of the younger kids. If they wanted to take your bike, they're going to take your bike and they'll drop it off later wherever they leave it, but they'll push you off of it. And if you resist, you, you might get beat up. They didn't have any issue with that. So I just didn't like it. I didn't like people taking things from me. I didn't like people taking things from my friends or really, I didn't like it if they were doing it to somebody I didn't even know. It just it's always bothered me. And I probably have a bigger mouth than I probably should have, but it definitely sculpted me and shaped me in a way because I learned how to take a beating as a young child. But as I got older and bigger and stronger, it was not easy for bullies to do it. And so I found that I was actually able to stop a lot of bullying, sometimes just by speaking my mind. People would often just back down and sometimes it just takes one person to stand up to somebody. and. It's almost like showing a mirror to a person who is drunk. They see this face that they didn't realize that they were capable of making and they are become yeah. appalled at themselves. And 
it definitely shaped me into being a person who wants to protect people. And so that's what drew me always to the army. I always grew up thinking of soldiers as being these heroic people who would go off and protect people. I think sometimes politics can get in the way of who's right or who's wrong in a situation. But even when I was in the military, I never looked at people that are on the other side as enemies other than the fact that they're on the other side. I realized there are people doing a job too. Not always. Sometimes they, there are people who are just, you know, have more nefarious things involved. But I was always looking at it as I probably would do the same things if I was in that country and somebody was over here from another place. So I even wanted to protect people of all, anybody who's innocent. I wanted to protect so women, children. I, I'm always going to be willing to lay down my life for them. And that's what drew me to the military. And I became a military police officer because it was the highest level that I could go that to protect people of all different, even soldiers I was able to protect. So to me, that, that was really appealing for me. I couldn't have been like a sniper or anything like that because it just seemed too much of one end of the service that you got to be a special person to be able to do that and compartmentalize what you're doing. And, Hmm. So I just like to be able to be out there and, and help people and protect things. I was able to do that as a military police officer. So that, that the internal strength, it must have been very difficult as your heart was failing you. To, you've got this strength there, but you just knew that it didn't matter how much strength you had, it was going to happen. It seemed like reading your book that you, at some point you just let go of that after that being like a mainstay for how you viewed yourself in your life up until that point. What was that like when you reached that point where he goes, I'm going to die here. It's, there's, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Yeah. That's very insightful. Actually. I, it, very good analysis of how I was. I was so overly dependent on my physical strength. I've always liked physical activities. I've ran marathons. I've done mixed martial arts, boxing, weightlifting, very hands-on with my physical activities. And so when this all happened, all that stuff went away and I've had to really grasp with missing a very vital part of my life. That was one of the hardest things for me to deal with because anything that we love, if a painter was unable to paint, they're going to really suffer because of that. If a musician, same thing, they're going to suffer by losing their ability to play their instrument. And so any of us who have a passion or a joy for something, when it's taken from us, that's a real challenge. But when mine was taken from me, and of course, this experience, I think, helps a lot. It's been replaced with this confidence that despite not being able to do those things, there's other ways that I can be strong. And particularly, I've found that kind of getting out of my own way, I've been able to let God be that strength for me. And I, I look at my physical life now and I take whatever comes, whatever happens with my heart. Heart transplant's a great thing. People do live a long time now, but there's no guarantees. And I know that. I'm okay with it as well. I'm actually quite grateful for the amount of time I've already had after my heart transplant. I look at life so much more differently now because we're all going to lose our strength at some point. We're all going to lose our virility and our beauty. and All these things fade over time. And if that's what we hang our whole life on, we're bound to have disappointment. And so perhaps this was a blessing in disguise that way for me as well, that I had a crash course in having it taken away. And yet I found that love 
is really the best strength that I've had. And it was hidden inside of me all this time. I look back on my life of being what I thought was a protector, which often goes into a blurred area. Sometimes you, you are a little quick to maybe want to jump in and protect somebody and you go to an extreme where now you become the bully. And I certainly mm. think bullies would have called me a bully, but granted they are bullies. So don't really feel horrible about it. But at the same time, I know that there were times that I could have talked them out of it and it could have had a much better resolution than just going right straight to aggression. And that is the thing that I regret is that I could have handled things so much more differently that you, you beat somebody up. It, it stops that situation, but it doesn't often stop the, the pattern of behavior. In fact, it can maybe incite it and make it become even more of an issue because the person has a wound now that they're going to want to have some sort of salve for. And usually if they're a bully, they want to continue bullying and be even better at it, just not have you around when they do it. So I found that love is now my strength. And it's actually a strength that just, it provides me so much more than probably what I give to other people. It's quite amazing. Yeah, I guess it's a positive energy, isn't it? Rather than a negative one. And it's, it seems to be like a limitless thing. So I'm interested in... When you crossed over and it seemed like there's this great expansiveness of who you are, your awareness, your energy, and then you're coming back to your body. And what was that like after that sort of re-entry? Obviously, it was painful, but did it feel like restrictive because of the way that you'd expand? You had to fit back into your body. What was that like? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. The ecstasy that I was feeling overwhelmed everything else. So even the pain that, that I had, I do remember it was painful when I came back. And yet it wasn't anything like what I had experienced beforehand. I remember the pain beforehand being far worse than what it was afterwards. But I do get what you're saying because I feel it now more than I probably did when I came back because I was still so touched by God when I came back. But now I feel completely restricted. It's weird to say I really can't wait until I do get to die again. And yet... I don't want that to happen until God wills it. I figure that every day I wake up, I'm so grateful. I'm like, okay, what do I get to do for you today, God? I've never spent my life looking for the positive things that I can do for others. Particularly, I did it in a way, when you think of somebody who likes to, to stop bullies, it's really about me because I don't like bullies and I get a satisfaction off of stopping them. Or I do like to help people with it, but still there's a sense of honor that goes to it or something that I get out of it. But when you share love, you're really just giving that. And while you do receive love back sometimes, you don't always. And yet you don't stop sharing it because love doesn't put limits like that. Love has to be a free gift. And if you put a limit on it or an expectation on something back in return, it's not true love. So my days are so much different. And the only restriction that I have is that I want to feel God's love as much as I did there. And so... I know that I can't in this physical body as I currently am. So the only way to get that is to die and he's not willing it yet. So I'll keep plugging away down here until that time. So you came back and obviously you, you recovered to some degree. And at some point you've, I haven't got that far in your book yet. You've had a heart transplant. And mm -hmm. could you talk a little more about what that was like? Yeah, I had the heart transplant two years after I had the, the near-death experience. In fact, if you want, I can send you some pictures of what my heart looked like. Yeah. It's amazing. When you see my heart, it does more than me trying to explain it. 
but the doctors are pointing out all these different places in my heart. They're like, what happens with my heart is that the disease that I have will attack the tissue and turn the healthy, smooth tissue of the heart muscle into hard scar tissue. And with the heart, it has to beat. So it's got to be flexible. It's got to be able to move. And that scar tissue grabs a hold and that tissue, the healthy tissue can't beat properly. So it sends off all these bad signals. And when you see my heart, you see how much scar damage that I had. The doctor's like, you shouldn't have been living. There's no way this heart could have been functioning. They couldn't explain it. They said, this is a medical miracle. And as they're saying that, I'm thinking, well, I know what kind of miracle it really is. But the doctors aren't really open to hearing that. And I don't want to be in the loony bin, but I've tried to share it with them. But most doctors are just, they just don't have the mm -hmm. capacity to have something that they can't explain or at least can't come up with a theory for. And yet here we are talking about something they couldn't explain. It was quite thrilling for me, but it was amazing for them to explain to me how my heart wasn't able to work. And I believed them because, well, I, I'm going to tell you this, because they kept coming up with calls for hearts saying, yeah, they had, we got a heart that matched for this guy and they'd go and look at it and they say, no, this isn't the right heart. So they turned them down a couple of times. And I had an appointment the day that I ended up getting the call. But I go into this appointment and they said, Brian, we had another one, but we had to turn it down. Still hoping we're going to get another one real soon. And I'm like, you know what? Next one, don't turn it down. I'm not going to make it, but a couple more days, if that. I really felt like I was going to die that day, but obviously I didn't. But I knew it was getting close because even my tattoo, I'm covered in tattoos. The doctors, after they did the heart transplant, they said, this guy's got tattoos. They didn't even know I had tattoos. My, my skin was like this ashen gray, like. Somebody who gets really bad frostbite, you know how their skin just doesn't look like normal skin. That's what my skin looked like. The blood just wasn't flowing right. But I was so exhausted. And I remember going back to the hospice care and my mom was there taking care of me. And so I'm laying down to go take a nap. And I told my mom that I loved her. And I said, if I don't wake up, tell my family that I love them. And I just, I can't stay up. I'm so tired and I just want to go to sleep. So I went to sleep and I wake up to the phone call saying, Brian, we got a good heart. You got to get in here right now. This one's a good one. So I went on into the hospital and that was history. Got a new heart. So it, it sounds like you felt a lot better after obviously having your chest cracked open heart <laughs> yeah. surgery. There's something about that better circulation and the feeling of tiredness and all that must have been a lot to do with how badly performing your old heart was. And then the new one must have been quite a big change in how you felt. Yeah, it was a huge change. The first thing I remember is I could breathe. It, it, it felt like I had a 300 pound person sitting on my chest all day long. It was so hard to breathe. I just, I remember the being able to breathe. I was so excited about that. And yeah, it hurts because they do crack your chest open. So it's not a pleasant feeling. And they put all these fluids in you. So then you don't get to drink for four days afterwards. So that's quite excruciating. And go without, go without liquids. I'll tell you, that's a torture I don't wish upon anyone. But I could feel my heart beating. I hadn't felt my heart beating for a long time. It was wonderful to feel. I felt like I could feel my blood rushing through my veins. It was that stark of a difference. And I just felt how I can, I even got up and started walking, not the next day afterwards, but the, the day after that. So they already had me up walking and I ended up getting out of the hospital in a week. It was a Whoa. quick tournament. I know that's what I said. I was a little nervous. I'm not gonna lie. I was a little nervous when they said, Hey, you know what? We think you can get up and walk around or they asked me first. And I'm like, yeah, I think we, we could do it, but I'm worried about because they had a, they put a belt around you so that they, if you fall, they can hold on to it. And I'm like, don't hold on to that belt. That's going to hurt coming up. 
I fall, I'll try to fall the right way, but they insist upon it. And I'm like, so just make me feel reassured that my heart or my chest isn't going to open. Are these stitches good? Or I just wasn't sure because you don't feel like everything's real solid there. It was a really bizarre feeling. And yet I got up and walked around and so it was quite interesting. Let's just back a little bit to the NDA. Other people I've spoken to, there's this kind of opening, almost like this super normal abilities that they acquire or an opening of senses that we're not normally attuned to just as typical human beings. Have you had anything like that? No, I didn't get that, but I can only say that I have this profound love for people. I don't know if that would be considered a special ability. I think coming from where I, would, yeah. I was more of a facts person. I've always was like, if something's a factual situation, I'm going to stick to the facts. Because it's facts. I just, I prefer to have people tell me the truth. I don't like it when people deceive me or even try to blur the truth. I'd rather just have them out with it so I, I can adjust based on truth. And not everybody's like that. In fact, most people seem to get a little bit sensitive when it's a truth that they're not prepared to handle. And I can delicately present the truth to people in a way that it's easier to accept. I just don't like doing that. It, it takes more work. Now I'm okay with doing the work. I'm okay with taking the time and being a little more patient. And it's all stemming from this love that I have. And the love really is because I love God and I know how he looks at people. So the way that I try to look at people now is through the way that I see God looking at them. And if God loves me as much as he does, he's got to love everybody else. He's probably even more. If people knew how bad I was, I used to think I was a good person, but I had a lot of things go well for me in life. And I imagine if everybody else had everything as well as I did, they would have been much better people. So I, I look at people now and I say, they're doing this particular behavior, but I don't know their whole backstory. I don't know what's, what their life was like. So I'm looking at people much differently and it is giving me an ability to have more care for people than their outward appearances would maybe lead you to want to do. Well, maybe, I guess maybe that's a special It's nothing supernatural, I think, other than the fact that God's working through me with that. But I don't, I can't read people's thoughts or anything like that. Yeah, that's an interesting answer. I think it's very valuable. Love has become a fundamental thing for you. Yeah, I wouldn't trade for anything. Rod, I'm telling you, this is, it's just changed everything for me to, to where I can endure just about anything. And I've always been a really strong guy as far as high threshold for pain. I had little patience for obtuseness. If somebody does something, it, it would just, it would really bother me that not an unintelligent person, yet they're acting this way that would make you believe that they were. That used to bother me so much. And now I start to look at it and I say, I've probably done that in my life when I had something going on. I don't know what their backstory is or what maybe their wife yelled at them that day. And I just try to find ways of reconciling that particular behavior beauty of that human soul and i think my life certainly is better because of it and hopefully everybody who i come in contact with feels the same way about our interaction so what do you mainly do with your life nowadays so i know there was the military and then working in psychology and corrections etc are you still in that sort of area yeah i'm working with homeless now i feel really called to the homeless i haven't found out who my heart donor is but they did give me some background. They said that it was somebody who, I'm not sure what the category was, but it was along the lines of people who lived a risky lifestyle. And so like prisoners or could be prostitutes or could be homeless, but they were an organ donor. So 
if they had a viable organ and they had wanted to donate it, then that could be selected. And that's where my heart came from, is from somebody who will fit in that category. I've never really cared that much to help the homeless. I give them money when I see them out on the sidewalk. and I do that kind of thing, but I always figured that there was some help for them. Well, the government's going to take care of it. I never gave it much more of a thought than that. And I don't know how it is over there, but homelessness is out of control in the United States. And it's growing rapidly. And so I have just felt called to, to use my services to help homeless. And I'm not even kidding. It's so rewarding. Not that every guy I work with is that rewarding. There's plenty of guys who are very comfortable with using drugs and living their life the way that they want to live it. And if somebody was to give them money, they're going to try to steal the rest of your wallet. But there's a lot of people who are not like that. And they're just needing a little hand up, not a hand out. They need a hand up falling down to this place where they just can't get out from it. The stories I could tell you, but my heart is so much more into this. I've always liked to work with people that a lot of people in my field don't want to work with. I've tried to fill the holes because I'm not afraid to work with prisoners. So I went into the corrections and I wasn't afraid to go in there and work with them. In fact, I like it because they usually handle the truth. And like I told you, I'm a person who likes to tell people how I see it, whether they like it or not. This is my perception and I'm going to give it. Sometimes some of the clients that I've worked with, patients in the past, had been wealthier. They don't like to have that. They like to have you build their self-esteem up in a different way. And so prisoners, they were always fun to work with. I like to work with vets. Of course, I have a connection to vets, so that makes that a little bit more enjoyable just because of the similarities that we have. But I'm finding working with the homeless has been so rewarding. And I like to think that maybe that high risk category had something to do with that. Is that I just have this new calling that I just never really was open to before. And perhaps it's because it was planted in my head, but I certainly feel a very strong compulsion to help them. And so how can people find out more about the work that you are doing at the moment, if they wanted to. If people want to email me, I have my tsdismus at gmail.com. That's the email I use for correspondence. I'm open to questions because this is a difficult topic in, in a lot of ways. Most people are far more excited about it, but sometimes people will just send me messages about prayer requests and they know I'm praying more. It seems like a natural thing and I'm happy to do it. So to be honest with you, gives me a lot of encouragement to have somebody that I can tangibly pray for. I like to do that. So that's one way that people can reach me. I do have a YouTube page. I'm not real active on it. I am so busy with a lot of my other things that that doesn't get a lot of dedication, but I do every once in a while put a video on there and it's under psychology of heaven with TS Dismiss. Otherwise people can check out my book if they want to know more about my story, but I put it all on my YouTube page too. It's just, Sometimes some people like to have that copy and they like to read it, but a lot of people don't like to read, but other people like to know about what led up to it. How bad was it? I think for me, that's the way I would do it because obviously I wrote about it, but I think it's so impressive how I went from this person who was reliant on my strength and having all of that taken away, just stripped down to just nothingness and having that all replaced by God. I just would never have expected it. I told you, I believed in God. I loved God even. But it wasn't like I gave him my whole self. I still was holding on to this part that I can muscle through life. I can make things happen. I was competent in my work, so I was able to get promotions. Yet, I never looked at all the advantages that God was 
helping to open these doors for me. And I never gave him thanks for anything. It was always pat myself on the back. I might say, hey, thanks, God. But still, I'm giving myself probably 90% of the credit. Now, knowing that he has taken that physical strength from me, it humbled me to the point where I had to rely on him to get through this whole situation. And now I know that he's always there with me and he'll maximize my gift. He won't take them away from me, but he maximizes them and they're used far much better reasons than I would ever do on my own. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Brian. I think it's an incredible story. It's way more interesting than what I initially thought it would be. As someone who's read about three quarters of your book, I can say it's definitely worth reading. I find it really fascinating. And yeah, I just I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time to be here to talk to me all the way over in Australia. I know okay. I sound English, but actually Australian, but that's okay. That's a pretty common thing. Some people think I'm from New Zealand as well. Yeah, sorry about that. That's an insult, isn't it? No, no, not at all. Okay. I always find it amusing because it's you know, it can be yeah. a wild card. Sometimes people will pick an accent. Other times they're like, I'm not really sure about that. And it's just fun. As it was, yeah. It doesn't matter. What do you think of our accents? I always think we don't have one. Of course, to you guys, we have some sort of an accent. Yeah, I get in trouble with if I think people are from Canada rather than from the USA. It's I'm not from the USA. I'm from Canada or I'm not Canadian. I'm... <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm like down the border. I'm down south of Canada. I'm in Minnesota, but yeah. we're close enough to Canada and we don't like them. Most Canadians are really nice people. We don't want to be told we're Canadian. All right. That. That's, that's all good. It's been fun. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really wish you well for the future and... I think that you're shining your light in the world, which is a really great thing. I think that's a, a very noble cause. And I think you're you're just incredibly brave. You've gone through what you've gone through and still had the courage to get up and go, okay, I'm coming back. I'm not going to stay. I'm going to come back. I just find that just incredible. Uh, I'll tell you what, I didn't feel like it, I would never have guessed on the way out that I would have ever came back, that I was completely done yeah but i appreciate that thank you for the nice words and just for being so kind and i really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share share god's love more you're giving me that opportunity so thank you very yeah. much